I'd say we don't need more German tanks. We need more German trains. There's only enough trains to move 1.5 armor brigades in Europe total simultaneously. In uh, 1995, when the uh, NATO's I-4 went into Bosnia to implement the Dayton Peace Accords, we had Russian troops with us. I mean, a modern brigade command post um, gives off a signal like a small city, and, and it's easily targetable. Hey, and welcome to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and this episode features a discussion with retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. He began his 37-year career in the U.S. Army as a platoon leader in Germany, and he finished that career serving in his last assignment until 2017 as the Commanding General of U.S. Army Europe. And in between those bookends of his career, he gained a wealth of experience that makes him especially well-suited to share his insights on the topic of this episode, European defense. We talk specifically about a range of issues that make European defense especially complex today and will make it even more so in the future. The conversation touches on everything from logistical challenges to interoperability with allies to the nuances of European defense politics to the implications of a rising China on European security. It was a fascinating talk that I really enjoyed, and I really think listeners will as well. Before we get to it, a couple notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a second, please leave a rating or give it a review, which really does help us reach new listeners. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. General Hodges, sir, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the MWI podcast. Thanks for the privilege. So you hold the Pershing Chair of Strategic Studies yeah. at the Center for European Policy Analysis. You also served uh, most recently in the Army uh, before retiring as the Commanding General of U.S. Army Europe. Clearly, European security, European defense is a uh, is a topic that you're intimately aware of and uh, probably spend a lot of your time, uh, professional time, thinking about. Uh, you have a new book co-authored with uh, retired General John Allen, uh, former Marine Corps general officer and now uh, head of the Brookings Institution, and Julian Lindley French, a British uh, academic that um, probably few of our listeners will be familiar with, but some of them will because he's a very prolific writer and and um, is kind of a prominent voice in discussions about European security, especially from a from a British perspective. Um, I mentioned this before we started recording, but for listeners' benefit, I'll, I'll also mention it now. I struggle sometimes when I when I speak to people who have a new book out on how to kind of structure the conversation, how to format it. Uh, you know, do we kind of follow the the book itself, um, or do we just kind of cherry pick topics? This was actually one of the easier discussions because the book is so packed with, um, you know, there are so many sort of subsets and and various aspects of this problem set, uh, if we can call it that. Uh, that we're not going to be able to cover it all. So what I'd like to do is ask kind of a couple of big questions to frame uh, the discussion and and sort of establish the scope of um, of this problem set again. 
uh, and then kind of uh, maybe neck down into some of the, some of the specific issues that I think our listeners will really be interested in. So if you're all right with that, uh, the book is called Future War in the Defense of Europe. And so there are two elements there, fut- the future, the future of warfare and the defense of Europe that are two things that I'd kind of like to try to um, establish some boundaries around for the sake of this conversation. So the first one of these, the defense of Europe, how would you sort of describe um the problem that 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 is here to be solved, so to speak. What are the issues facing Europe Europe from a defense perspective? John, thank you. Um, of course, the the biggest problem that we have is is playing out right in front of us uh, in the Black Sea region with uh, Russia's aggression against Ukraine, and and all of us in the West are kind of scurrying around trying to figure out how do we respond to it, and it's because that reflects um, that we have not taken the threat from Russia seriously especially if you live in France or Germany or UK or uh, even in the U.S. Um, over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, obviously, if you're a former part of the uh, former Soviet Republic or former Warsaw Pact nation, you know what, what the Kremlin represents. Uh, but the further west you go, the less concerned people are. And so uh, the whole point of future war uh, and the defense of Europe is that the, the lack of a clear-eyed willingness to recognize the threat. You know, if, if, if you're a politician, if you don't acknowledge a threat, then you don't have to do anything about it. If you acknowledge a threat, then you ha- that means you have to do something. You have to put money against it. And unfortunately, uh, in Berlin and in Paris and, and in London, which is sometimes referred to as London grad, uh, mm-hmm. there's, a, uh, there's so much business connections there that there's an unwillingness to acknowledge the threat. Do you think that unwillingness also stems from, you know, I, I obviously the, the circumstances are very different, um, but we look back to 1945 um, and a period where, uh, where the Soviet Union had been an ally, um, but in fairly quick order became sort of this, you know, a first competitor and, and ultimately an adversary. And there was this recognition at that point. Um, it almost feels more gradual now. You know, you think back to, um, you know, almost 20 years ago when, when then president Bush, uh, you know, said he looked Putin in the eye, um, and felt like he, he saw the soul of the man. And then you had, when the Obama administration came into office in 2008 and the famous reset button, there's been this period of kind of begrudging recognition that Russia isn't everything we'd want them to be in terms of, you know, being a partner. Uh, but at the same time, almost a, a hesitance to actually maybe, see Russia for what it is, uh, see the Kremlin for what it is, and and see Russian actions for, for what they are. What explains that? Well, uh, you have hit the nail squarely on the head. Uh, we look at Russia through Western eyes. We just believe that everybody wants to kind of make money and get along and that sort of thing, and we refuse to look at the situation, uh, the strategic environment, uh, through the eyes of the Kremlin. Uh, and to acknowledge that we know from 400 years of history, they only respect strength. This is not about, you know, the Soviet Union or communism or whatever. It's, it was from Peter the Great until Putin, an unbroken chain of people that only respect strength and uh, do not care about the impact on their own populations. They're willing to expand millions of lives, as we saw during the Second World War. Um, they only respect strength and, and despise weakness. And so, uh, the fact that President Bush, when he says I could look into his eyes, um, what he should have seen was nothing but 
red red burning embers because that's all that's in that in that soul of Vladimir Putin. And uh, we keep being surprised by what the Russians do because we think, well, you know, to know us is to love us, and they'll and they'll all surely love us. And frankly, um, uh, the weaknesses in Western society uh, we're vulnerable to Russian disinformation, and it's easy for the Kremlin to tell their own population, look how. Uh, look at all the problems in the West, all the incoherence, the uh, vulgar, the immorality, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, we've, we've lost some of our uh, moral power as well. I think that's a fascinating point, The this idea that um, we have to look at Russia today in the context of its of its very long history, much longer history than, than, than we have Um you know, politically, sociologically, what have you. There's a, I, I, I find myself maybe being hedging a little bit too much toward the optimist side that, you know, act, state actors can change over time. Mm-hmm. But I recently, you know, I think maybe six months ago, read a book by Mark Galliotti called A Short History of Russia. And it is short. It's, you know, fewer than 200 pages. But by condensing all that history into there, it suddenly, it, it really makes clear these sort of clear, bright lines that, that connect um, Russia to its history for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, that I would recommend to, uh, to, uh, to listeners if they want to kind of, you know, understand that perspective yeah. and, and that way of understanding Russia. Yeah. yeah. And of course, Mr. Galeotti is a, a well-respected author and expert on what goes on inside Russia. And he seems to have a, a real understanding of the culture and, and the tendencies uh, but, you know, look, there's nothing wrong with being an optimist. I, I was an optimist in uh, 1995 when the uh, NATO's I-4 went into Bosnia to implement the Dayton Peace Accords. We had Russian troops with us. Now, they were not under NATO command. They refused to do that, but they had a sector. And we had worked out a, um, a uh, tactical control sort of arrangement to ensure some sort of coordination and uh, avoiding fratricide and that sort of thing. And it worked. And I was like, holy hell, this... This might actually work. And so there was a reason that all of us were kind of hopeful, the piece of dividend and, and that sort of thing. But uh, that was the aberration in, in how Russians think about things. And, and so, uh, again, future war is based on uh, understanding what the threats are and taking the necessary steps to deal with that. And it's, this is not just European failure. It's, a, it's an American failure. When I when I was a lieutenant in Germany, we had three hundred thousand troops here in West Germany, in Central and Southern West Germany, and in Italy, and in some in Turkey. Uh, and the mission was to deter the Soviet Union, uh, assure our allies, and protect American interests. Today, we have thirty thousand American soldiers in all of Europe. You know, the the front line is no longer the inter-German border; it's now from uh, Estonia or actually Norway, all the way down to the Black Sea, 30,000. And the mission is to deter Russia, protect America's interests, and assure our allies. So you had to make 30,000 look like 300,000 in terms of effect. Uh, That's because the U.S. Army and the whole U.S. Department of Defense downsized so much. And frankly, um, this, this Russian fairy tale that everything they're doing is in response to NATO encroachment, all of their attacks happened after uh, the, the, with the significant drawdown of U.S. forces. The Brits began pulling their stuff back off the continent. The Bundeswehr downsized. Um, the attack in Ukraine 
in 2014 happened after the last American tank went home. We had zero tanks for the first time since 1944. No American tanks in Europe. Unbelievable. Wow. That's actually a great segue into this sort of second framing question I want to ask. I said that the title has kind of two things in it. One is, you know, what is the defense of Europe? What is the problem set? The other is this idea of future war. And so the book opens and closes with two vignettes. Uh, and I won't give too much away, but each looks at sort of a 10-year time horizon. The events that are taking place are taking place in 2030. Um, is that, you know, when we talk about the future of war from a, from a, from this perspective, when we're trying to kind of frame a discussion about European defense, is 10 years, you know, about kind of the time horizon that makes the most sense to, to look out to? And if so, why? Hmm. Uh, good question. I, I was always, uh, I struggled when I was like at the war college or something and people would talk about, hey, you got to think out 30 years. Like, man, I can't even think to next year. I, I, and I, I didn't have the, don't have the brain power to envision uh, technological advances moving so fast because as we do know they they don't increase on a straight line it takes off uh and and that's what's happening now 10 years seems like a reasonable amount of time to examine because you know that's uh at least two two and a half presidential terms for the united states um two terms for prime minister or here in germany i mean so those are logical kind of blocks of time and most people can kind of get their head around a decade in advance. So I think that's a reasonable block uh, for trying to peer into the future. Uh, I, I was at a, in a Warsaw Security Forum two years ago when I made the comment that I thought uh, that the United States would be in a kinetic conflict with China in the next uh, 10 to 15 years. I said, kinetic. So it's not inevitable, but I believe it's very possible. And the people in the audience had heart attacks. I had journalists come up to me and like, how, how can you say that? What do you base that on? And what I had based it on was um, thinking about how the U.S. Navy prepared for World War II, the war games that they conducted in the interwar years. And they did extensive war gaming, not only against the Japanese, but also possible war against Great Britain and, and other potential adversaries during the 20s and 30s. And there was sort of a 10-year block of time that it took them to realize we are really going to get serious about air power if we're going to fight in the Pacific. And so thank God they did so that we had the beginning of a meaningful carrier fleet that fortunately um, uh, was missed during Pearl Harbor. And that's the only reason we were able to kind of fight our way back. So that block of time was in my head when I mentioned that about war with China. Um, I have been pushed on that and questioned on that several times. And I recently was asked again, said, do you still stand by that 10 year? I said, no, I was wrong. It's not 10 years. It's five years. Uh, I think mm -hmm. we're going to be in a conflict with China, a kinetic conflict with planes, missiles, submarines, the whole deal um, within five years. And I base that on uh, the language coming out of Beijing about Taiwan, the increasing belligerence of uh, Chinese military, uh, the fact they, they saw that we didn't do anything after they smashed up Hong Kong. I mean, we, not even Great Britain did anything except offer, you know, uh, instant visas to people that could get there. But other than that, we didn't do anything. Zero. Uh, we, uh, there's a thousand Philip, uh, Chinese fishing vessels, uh, sitting in, around the Filipino, uh, set of islands. 
I mean, then the Philippines can't do anything about it. And this this is a part of the, the tool toolbox that China uses in the region. And so when I think about Hong Kong, South China Sea, uh, the um, uh, Taiwan, um, and unfortunately, the size of our great Navy is not big enough to do everything it needs to do in the Indo-Pacific region, support Europe, keep transatlantic uh, lines of communication secure, because those will be contested in a crisis. And by the way, uh, protect the global commons, you know, Straits of Hormuz, the Malacca Straits, all these other places, keeping them secure. So that this is this is competition. And um, the I do, I do believe that great power competition prevents great power conflict. That if you compete in all domains, diplomacy, information, and economy, as well as military, you convey to potential adversaries, we care about this place. And we're going to have, we have a strategy for it, and we're going to put resources against it. And uh, that, in my mind, significantly reduces the chance of a terrible miscalculation, which is what's happening in Black Sea right now, that we can't or won't really do anything about it. The, uh, the the mention of China is actually a really good segue into this sort of list I said of I, I have of questions about specific uh, aspects of European defense that I think are interesting. So that's the first one I'll ask is, you know, when when I was reading uh, the vignettes, there was talk about uh, troop buildups in, in Europe being reliant on uh, troop ships on on, you know, crossing the Atlantic on, on ships. And for, you know, for those of us who, you know, I, I was in Iraq, uh, well after the invasion, I was in Afghanistan. Well, after that, um, where you flew to war, you know, we landed in, at Biop when I, when I, when I went to Iraq, I landed at, uh, at Bagram when I, uh, when I went to Afghanistan, this idea, you know, that you cross oceans on ships feels like what my grandfather did when he went to Korea, uh, and, and left, uh, Fort Lewis went, left Washington state to, to take a ship to Korea, but it's a real thing. These, you know, the, these sort of, uh, maritime resources are, are important. Is that when we talk about China and its potential, how the China problem set overlays on European defense, is that the biggest the biggest thing that we should be looking at? Is is competition for resources uh, in terms of dealing with uh, dealing with things in two separate theaters at the same time? Yeah, um, very good point. We don't have enough resources, and of course, this is so expensive. I mean, deterrence is incredibly expensive, um, very expensive. But failed deterrence is a hundred times more expensive, obviously. So we've got to. You, we're always having to take risks. Um, and I think that the current administration is 100% correct to emphasize the importance of alliances, of our alliance, our NATO alliance, the most successful alliance in the history of the world, not perfect, but it has adapted. Uh, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, NATO did a lot of things quickly to include the Obama administration bringing tanks back to Europe so that now we are, because of the problem you just identified of having the troop ships move across the Atlantic, that will surely be contested if we're in a if we're in a conflict. Uh, so um, getting equipment on the ground that troops could in fact fly back into and, and get. So we've got almost all the equipment for our armored division on the ground in Europe. Now we can't assume that those sites won't be struck, but nonetheless, this is part of the strategic challenge and why we need our European allies, obviously, to do a lot more. And I don't envision a big giant red arrow coming across Poland and Germany 
which is what we expected, of course, in the uh, during the Cold War, uh, in which the Russians, the Soviets, had actually planned to do. But nonetheless, having to have capability that can then move to uh, protect our allies along NATO's eastern flank, you have the same sort of challenge in China, except or in the Indo-Pacific region, except the distances are so much greater. And um, while I don't imagine land forces on the Asian landmass not in China. Um, U.S. Army plays a significant role in the logistics and the air and missile defense and intelligence and in so many other facets of what the Navy needs in the Indo-Pacific region. And uh, long-range fires, there's a reason that the Army has prioritized long-range precision fires. How does this stuff get there? And we can't just assume that we can fly or sail wherever we want to go. This is, this is part of that competition. And so I think the, uh, the administration is um, correct in continuing what the previous administration was doing, was shoring up our relationships with uh, not only Japan, South Korea, and Australia, but also uh, re- regaining or rebuilding a relationship with the Philippines and especially with India. I think these are very important. We'll get some, we could count on help, I think, probably from the Royal Navy and perhaps even the French in the Indo-Pacific region. But what we really need is for our European allies, and this is one of the main points of the book, to carry the burden of deterrence in Europe, to be that strong European pillar, to allow the U.S. to use its limited resources in the Indo-Pacific region if that became necessary. that That's why Defense of Europe is more about European forces and European alliance and European capabilities than it is about increasing significant amounts of American capability. We've got to get a strong European pillar. And unfortunately, what we have right now and what the Kremlin sees very clearly is we have a European pillow, and we, we've got to address that. Uh, so... We often sort of simplify that conversation down to which countries are hitting their 2% GDP defense spending targets and which are not. Uh, is it, I mean, is it just about spending enough money? And if not, what else can we do to sort of enhance uh, the readiness and the capability of the various European allies and NATO allies? Yeah, thank you. Um, two, 2% is a useful metric because it's it's simple and and. Politicians can understand it, and it, it is part of the uh, framework of, of demonstrated commitment. So I'm not against 2%. What I'm against is that it was used, especially over the last four years, but not only, um, as a club or a hammer to beat our allies. And uh, some responded positively. Others, like here in Germany, that was the worst approach for them. It's, you know, it's a coalition government here. No, Even if Chancellor Merkel... Woke up every morning thinking we got to get to two percent. It's never going to happen because in the coalition, the SPD um, has the position of finance minister, and he doesn't have to do it. And and they were never going to do it. So, how do we get creative and more sophisticated about encouraging improved investment and and making sure we have the capabilities that we need? Um, I I'm not an advocate for saying, okay, let's make it 3%. And then all the money that you spend on foreign aid should count towards that also, because then that just waters down and that doesn't give the Alliance uh, real capability. Um, you have to have political leaders that are willing to address and be clear eyed about the threat for the first time in German history. They have only friends on all their borders. 
everywhere. They have only friends for the first time in their history. So in my neighborhood here, people say, like, what's the threat? What are we worried about? Why do we need to be spending so much money? And 2% of the German economy is a, is a significant amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that approach doesn't work. But I think if we um, think about what do we need Germany to do? What does the alliance need Germany to do? Now, obviously, the size of the Bundeswehr is not inconsequential. It's close to 200,000 of all services. They have three divisions. The, the army has three divisions. Two of them are armored. One of them is kind of a combination airborne infantry and so on. Um, real modern capability, but they're not fully manned. They're not at the right level of readiness. Readiness is terrible. So for the Bundeswehr, fixing readiness should be priority one, two, and three, no doubt. But after that, I'd say we don't need more German tanks. We need more German trains. There's only enough trains to move 1.5 armor brigades in Europe total simultaneously. That's pathetic. And uh, for me, a big part of deterrence is speed, speed of recognition, speed of decision, speed of assembly. We have to show the, the Kremlin that we can move as fast or faster than them to send a signal, do not, we see what you're doing. Don't think that you can attack into Lithuania and kind of penetrate the, or cut off the Suwalki corridor before we get there. That's, so that's why trains uh, are improving infrastructure that has demonstrated dual use military uh, require, meets the requirement for the military. That should count towards 2%. Uh, encouraging the Germans to make sure that all transportation infrastructure is protected against cyber. You know, like uh, you and many others, I, I read the article by Andy Greenberg a couple of years ago that was in Wired magazine. It was in a hair-raising story about the NotPetya cyber attack that was actually targeting a Ukrainian tax office, and uh, it digitally ricocheted and, and struck down Maersk you know, one of the largest shipping companies in the world. And Maersk was paralyzed for weeks. It lost hundreds of millions of euro because everything was automated and it was not protected. And uh, that when I saw that, it really jolted me as to our vulnerability against cyber attacks that would um, shut down airports, seaports, uh, power generation for rail networks, and every other thing that we have to have for deterrence. So whatever Germany puts into that, I think that should count towards 2%. These are some examples. It's a, um, it's a great point. I, I had a chance to have a, a conversation with, uh, Bob work, former deputy defense secretary, Bob work. I bet that was quite a conversation. <laughs> it was, yeah, it's hard to keep up with. Uh, he's got a big brain. The, uh, but we were talking about artificial intelligence and advanced technologies. And I asked him the question about how this overlays on you know, our alliance system in Europe, because these are expensive technologies and a lot of our partners and allies don't have the resources to be able to keep up with us. And he said, you know, essentially we're not trying, we shouldn't be trying to create many versions of the U.S. military in each of these allies. They have different contributions that they make, uh, different unique resources that they can bring to bear. And he made the comparison to, uh, during the cold war when, uh, U.S. doctrine, was developed around this idea of airland battle and a NATO adopted follow on forces attack. And he said, these are, these are ways to complement one another rather than trying to create, you know, whether one country can, can, you know, produce a battalion or a brigade or a division of forces that can integrate in. He said, that's not what we should be looking to do. 
uh, with uh, with these technologies. And I think that you sort of reiterated that point that we sh we should sort of maybe broaden the aperture in terms of how we think about um, contributions to the preparation for European readiness and defense. Well, think about this: um, if with NATO's enhanced forward presence battle group, um, you've got an American battalion. For the, of the four EFP battle groups, the U.S. contribution is based in Orzic, Poland, Northeast Poland, kind of at the entrance to the so-called Suwalki Corridor that connects Poland to Lithuania between Belarus and Kaliningrad. And you've got a U.S. battalion that has a British company, a Romanian air defense battery, and a Croatian company. And this U.S. battalion is under a Polish brigade. And none of them can talk secure to each other because they all have different systems. And the U.S., uh, we are, uh, for understandable reasons, uh, we're not, we're reluctant to open up our networks, mm -hmm. you know, to share SIPR with everybody. And, and so what ends up happening, the American commander has to give up radios to all of his subordinates and to make sure there's one up in, Pol in the Polish headquarters so that they can all talk securely on the net. But think about air defense, fires, you know, this is not, you don't do that in a bubble. You're supposed to be integrated into a much broader context. And of course, right there, they are inside the uh, effective range of every Russian electronic warfare capability there is for jamming, for intercept, for targeting. And so this is a huge vulnerability. So we, we've got to make sure that our policies allow intelligence sharing and interoperability for communications in a secure frequency hopping mode. And, it, and the answer can't be, well, everybody has to buy this because it's not the technology. It's usually the a policy that has to be addressed. Sure. And you have the exact same problem with the German-led battle group up in Lithuania, the Canadian-led battle group in uh, Latvia, and the British-led battle group in Estonia. Now, these are all solvable, but it requires policy changes to allow intelligence sharing and uh, sharing of technologies. Same thing with air and missile defense. Uh, when you think about what a missile strike would be, and by the way, if the Russians are going to roll the dice and, and do an attack somewhere, well, they're not going to be bashful about launching missiles to shut down all the airports and seaports in Poland, for example, and maybe even in Germany, like Bremerhaven. Um, so, and for sure, Sweden has indicated that they will allow, in fact, they've even grown their military to include host nation support regiments. So that if we had to move through Sweden from whether it was from Norway or otherwise to use bases there. So Sweden, they've already been told by the Russians, you know, if, if you're a part of any of this, you're going to be a nuclear target. And that's not a knucklehead sitting in his mother's basement. I mean, these are like ministry level ambassador type people. Wow. So in air and missile defense, to be able to shoot down um, and protect uh, against uh, incoming Russian capabilities, you know, the sensors are on a ship out in the Baltic or in the Eastern Med or on a mountaintop in Turkey somewhere. Um, there are satellites, there are air breathers, there are ground-based systems from five, six, seven different countries. The headquarters for making decisions are between two or three different places in, in Germany. And the launchers are a mix of Patriot, NASAMs, other things that are in different countries. You, you have to exercise this. You, you have to and it's all going to be in a competitive EW environment. So we've got a lot of capability, but if you don't stitch it all together, the capability is, is totally lost. And by the way, there's only one Patriot Battalion, U.S. Patriot Battalion, in all of Europe. And that battalion is going straight to Ramstein to protect, to protect Ramstein. So who's protecting everything else? 
This is another place, by the way, where I think Germany and the Netherlands, you know, if you couch it as, hey, we need you guys to protect European citizens and European infrastructure, mm-hmm. that's a little bit more compelling than smashing them over the head about, you know, not buying more tanks. You mentioned that, uh, you know, when you first joined the army, uh, you served in Germany and, and the United States had 300,000 uh, service members in, in Europe, the bulk of which, uh, the bulk of whom were, were in Germany at the time. Now we've got 30,000 spread out across the continent. Um, you know, that, that pretty naturally these people to talk about uh, what we call tripwire forces. And, you know, I'm not sure in every context how useful that, that sort of terminology is, but um since it's what we've got, I'll ask you about it is, you know, is that an effective strategy, this idea of having forces that signal commitment, uh, without necessarily, you know, being able to withstand, uh, a, a full on assault from Russian forces across, say through into the Baltics or, uh, or even, you know, in the high North into Norway or elsewhere. So first of all, we, um, people who say, look, that's never going to happen. Why are we do, why are we doing this? You know, they should all be, uh, excused from the room. Uh, of course, it's unlikely that this is going to happen, but we want to keep it uh, unlikely. I have yet to meet a single person who predicted that the Russians were going to invade Ukraine and uh, annex Crimea the week after they hosted the Sochi Olympics. I have not met one person who came forward and said, hey, I told you so. Nobody. And so, um, you know, the Russians watched that we didn't respond after they invaded Georgia. They still occupied 20 percent of Georgia, by the way. Uh, 13 years after the fact, after they had said they would leave. Um, my Polish friends call them Russian peacekeepers, P-I-E-C-E. They show up and they keep a peace. Um, you now have Russian troops sitting in Azerbaijan, peacekeepers in Azerbaijan. They still have their bases from the Cold War in Armenia. They still have uh, two and a half, 2,500 troops in Transnistria, which is a region of Moldova. Uh, and now they're back in business in Belarus. Uh, this is not accidental. They saw that we didn't respond. And so um, what does that what does that mean for us? I would say that NATO has responded quickly and very well. In fact, lightning speed, when you think about the institution that has 30 members uh, and they have to have unanimous consent to do most of the big stuff. After the NATO summit in Warsaw in 2016, uh, we really moved out, created the enhanced forward presence battle groups that that you and I mentioned earlier. I, I, too, don't like the phrase tripwire because um, I, I think there's there's more capability than what that connotes. Uh, they're, they're integrated into host nation brigades. Uh, we still have a lot of work to do on the command structure above that and the logistics infrastructure. But nobody's just sitting on their hind, on their hindquarters right now. People are working on these things. And I think that the Kremlin sees that. The uh, everybody wants to have American soldiers, no doubt about it. The Estonians, the Latvians, Lithuanians, Poles, Romanians, they all want American soldiers based there because of what that represents. They know that the Russians absolutely do not want to go head to head with American military. We may talk about it, but they, they don't want to do that. And frankly, they don't want to go head to head against a united, cohesive NATO. That's why the cohesion of the alliance, when you got 30 together, the combined populations, economies, militaries, diplomatic power is so significant. So, um, you know, when, when the United States leadership is questioned in NATO, when we're not there to kind of keep 
It's never been perfect, by the way. I mean, not since day one has it been all flowers and, and music. It's always been a challenge. You remember the French kicked NATO out in the 60s. Uh, there were huge debates inside uh, NATO uh, about um, different Suez crisis, uh, Pershing II deployments, U.S. going into Iraq, all these things. But yet there's a reason nations line up to join NATO especially those who used to be Soviet republics or Warsaw Pact countries, because they know what it's like on the other side. There's nobody knocking on the door of the Kremlin saying, please let us back in. We want to get the band back together. Nobody wants that. I do think there is a, uh, a new iron curtain across the Black Sea. I mean, the Russians clearly use force against Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, um, but they're, they're, they've stopped short of doing that against uh, NATO countries. Um, we want, to, we want to maintain that. We want to build on that. Uh, we need a strategy that ensures um, that we are competing in all domains through, throughout Europe. Uh, general Abizade, retired General John Abizade, uh, served for a time as uh, the U.S. defense envoy to uh, the defense minister of Ukraine and the, and the, the general staff uh, of Ukraine. Um, I heard him describe what was happening in eastern Ukraine as, um, I believe it was World War I trench warfare with drones. Uh, and essentially he was describing uh, this sort of return to kind of a static form of warfare that we hadn't seen for a long time, but overlaid on top of it were all of these new technologies, a range of new technologies and weapon systems and, and what have you. How has that experience, in, in, you know, in, in from your personal experience um, and, and your observations uh, serving in Europe, being in Europe, how has what's happened uh, in Ukraine maybe changed perceptions uh, within uh, NATO member states, not just from a policy uh, point of view, you know, it, it, recognizing that Russia maybe is more of a threat than we uh, had previously thought, but also in terms of tactics and technologies and, and, and the sort of changing character of warfare that uh, is highlighted by what's going on in eastern Ukraine. Well, uh, the fact that you had got the chance to speak with old General Abizade uh, is really good. And he spent well, so much time there in Ukraine uh, helping to try, try to advise the re Ukrainian general staff and the Ministry of Defense on, on how they needed to uh, uh, improve capabilities. Uh, and he would always stop in Wiesbaden on his way out of Ukraine to say, hey, here's what I'm seeing and, and so on. And so it was a wake up call for us in U.S. Army Europe. We we had to transition our whole training model from uh, preparation for Afghanistan or so, quote, building partner capacity to uh, high end uh, peer on peer combat uh, where the enemy has drones and long range precision fires and, and uh, eye watering EW capability that far surpasses our own. We had to relearn a lot of stuff, how to how to disperse, how to have how to conceal yourself, not only from visual detection, but from detection of your heat signature and your uh, EW, your electromagnetic signature. I mean, a modern brigade command post um, gives off a signal like a small city and, mm -hmm. and it's easily targetable. That was not a problem in Afghanistan, obviously, but now it's a massive problem. And so uh, what we learned from uh, have learned from our Ukrainian friends. Uh, has been helpful in us in the U.S. Army as a whole, changing the training model so that the Op 4 now presents that kind of threat. And um, in keeping with U.S. Army tradition, Blue 4 goes to Hohenfels and gets crushed by the dreaded Op 4 now <laughs> using uh, all, all of those 
assets, but that's what that's how the army fixes things. You you address it at the training center, and everybody wants to be at the op for, and that's where you really that's where you really get it done. So um, the first technology that we provided Ukraine in the early days was the uh, Q thirty six radar. I mean this this was our counterfire radar. Uh, this was significant. Uh, it gave them early warning capability. And, and frankly, uh, I discovered that that radar was better than I had ever imagined. I, I'd never been under Russian artillery fire. Uh, Ukrainians obviously were constantly under Russian artillery fire and rocket fire. And they figured out how to employ these things in such a way that it was, it was, it was just better than I had imagined. Uh, they were very careful. They understood that, you know, of course that radar radiates, and it can be targeted. They lost one that stayed out in the open just a few seconds too long, and boom, they got it. That also got our attention to see how well the Russians were able to connect drones, targeting, fires, boom. So that, that's been uh, interesting. We've also learned from the in this so-called static environment, and it did become static after the first few months. After the Ukrainians stopped Russian forces, um, it has become static. And uh, still, if you are speaking in the clear on your little telephone or on an unsecure radio, you get crushed. And, and, and so now, obviously, the Ukrainians have adapted to that. And so at the top of their list are more radar and secure communications. Um, this is part of the environment, this new environment. That, and we, the Russians have seen, uh, have been using this as a live fire training range for all their newest kit. And they have unlimited access because they keep the OSCE special monitoring mission from doing its job. So just back and forth convoys of ammunition, new stuff, thousands of Russian troops, you know, part of this fairy tale that somehow this is a civil war or these are separatists is total bullshit that they are led down at the company level by Russian officers. There are Russian troops all over the place. And, um, you know, unfortunately, Berlin and Paris look the other way. Don't put any pressure on them. And that's why we are where we are. Um, the life for a Ukrainian soldiers is tough. I mean, you're, you're sitting in a trench like World War I, exactly like General Abizade said. And um, the ceasefire violations are about 90% Russian, 10% from the Ukrainian side. That's according to the OSCE. Wow. I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about um, one uh, sort of uh, specific issue in particular, and that's Turkey. Uh, Turkey is a longstanding member of NATO, um, you know, on the, the sort of southeastern corner of, of the alliance's geographic footprint. Um, there have been some issues that have arisen over the past few years with, uh, you know, the, the Russian uh, S-400 uh, air defense systems, uh, and also just, in, I think a general tone, um, that has, there, there's, there's a, there's a gap, uh, that has established. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's widening right now, but it may be, I want to kind of ask if, uh, you know, is this a, is this a problem that we need to be paying attention to is, do we need to, you know, and if it is, is it, is the solution paying a little bit more attention to Turkey and trying to kind of, you know, bring it on board and to keep it in the fold? Or is there a real risk that, that this is potentially one place where the alliance could fracture further? Uh, John, you are very good at your job. And, and we address Turkey a little bit in, in the book as well. Uh, Turkey is an essential ally uh, for NATO. 
um, it's a lieutenant can look at the map and say, wow, this is really important. And you also made the very uh, telling comment that it's kind of the southeast corner. Most NATO headquarters, you go in there, the Black Sea region in Turkey are right there at the bottom right-hand corner of the map. Mm-hmm. And so if you take that map and shift it so that the Black Sea is in the middle, then you start looking at the Black Sea region the way the Kremlin looks at it and the way the Turks look at it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I served in Izmir for two years at NATO's Allied Land Command from 2012 to 2014. And I was uh, I remember talking to the J5 of the Turkish general staff at the time. And I said, sir, how's it going? He goes, Ben, I wake up in the morning. I've got Russia to the north, Iran, Iraq, Syria to the south the Balkans to the West and the Caucasus to the East. It's a hell of a neighborhood. And it's like, like, wow, of course, but I never, you know, we don't think about Turkey that way. We think about Turkey at the bottom right-hand corner. You've got the boundary between Newcom and CENTCOM is also the border between Turkey and Syria. That's madness. It made sense maybe years ago, but today that's exactly the wrong place to have the, have the border. And frankly, because CENTCOM has been the dominant tribe over the last several years, what CENTCOM wanted would always take precedence over what UCOM might be trying to do. And, and for CENTCOM, uh, Turkey was a pain in the ass. It was a place to launch from, but they were a pain. And yeah. um, so that led us, I think, to make bad decisions like giving uh, weapons to YPG and then trying to say, hey, look, these are not PKK. It's sort of different. And it drove the Turks, our Turkish allies, crazy. And, and I think this was a strategic mistake for short-term tactical benefit. And look, uh, I there are so many things about Turkey that I cannot excuse. They're, they are spring-loaded to be offended. Uh, the S-400 decision was a terrible mistake. And then they tried to wrap it in a, in a false story about the U.S. would not sell Patriot. That's an absolute lie. We tried to sell Patriot when I was there. And, uh, Turkey wants, you know, they have a really, really significant and growing defense industry. They wanted Patriot with the secret sauce. Well, we don't give the secret sauce to anybody, not the Germans or the Dutch or the Spanish who also have Patriot. And so um, that was the reason they would not take, uh, they wouldn't buy Patriot and turn to the Russians. And now, they, and now they're frustrated that they're paying a price for that. Having said all of that, um, Turkey is it's an essential ally for us. Uh, no matter how frustrating they are, NATO is so much better with Turkey than without Turkey. Um, they're, uh, I wish that their focus was more into the Black Sea region, but you know, they're one in 11 against Russia in all their wars. And so that's in their head too. Uh, they depend on Russian tourism. They depend on Russian gas. Uh, these things are interconnected. So I think uh, a comprehensive strategy for the United States and for NATO about the Black Sea region would understand Turkey's, the significance of Turkey's geographic importance not just because of the straits, but because we need Turkey as a bulwark against Iran, against Islamic extremism. Turkey's got 4 million refugees inside Turkey or on its border that are there because of the civil war in Syria. And the civil war in Syria is only, and the Assad regime is only still in power because we failed to act. Even after the famous red line was laid out, we didn't do anything. The Russians saw that and they kept Assad in power. And now you've got millions of refugees uh, affecting Turkey. So I can understand a little bit Turkey's frustration. Um, the, uh, I, I would say uh, it's time for a Turkey USA 2.0, where you rebuild trust in each other, 
We don't allow our relationship with this ally, a member of NATO since 1952. Uh, and they, they show up for everything. They fill all their commitments everywhere. Not even the United States does that. Mm. Um, and don't let our relationship with this ally be defined by one issue as 400. I mean, let's, let's get, give them a golden bridge to, to get out of this somehow. Um, the, the current the current path around um, is is not the right path, and and I think if we're serious about uh, competition in this region, not just in, in around the Black Sea, but in the entire Middle East, uh, we need Turkey, and and uh, we need our Greek and Turkish allies to kind of put their swords back in their uh, sheath, uh, in their scabbard, and mm-hmm. uh, this is not new, but we got to make sure that we don't let it where they're trading paint. It's, um, you know, I once heard somebody describe as NATO as being kind of the only place where, uh, you'll see, uh, Turks and Greeks interact in a, in a constructive way, which is, you know, again, you know, sort of a simplification and, and, um, but NATO does offer, you're right. It's a, it offers a conduit for, um, sort of coordination that, that wouldn't exist elsewhere. And so Perhaps their further Turkey, Turkey's further alienation would only exacerbate that longstanding, um, potentially problematic relationship as well. You're, you're exactly right. Think about it. Every single nation that's in NATO, with the possible exception of Iceland, has been at war with at least three or four other nations in NATO. Mm. And, and yet, since the creation of NATO, none of them have been at war with each other. The, the exception is you know Greece and Turkey and Cyprus. But even that was contain um it could have been so much worse germany france uk i mean seriously i mean they've all been gnawing on each other for centuries but since the creation of nato this framework uh as imperfect as it is has kept uh each uh has prevented war on the european continent with the exception of yugoslavia the former yugoslavia and even then eu couldn't fix it un couldn't fix it nato with implementation force, managed to stop that. So uh, if we didn't have NATO, we'd have to come up with something that looked a whole lot like it. Okay. Well, I, I think I, I kind of want to wrap up by asking one uh, one more sort of general question. I mentioned that uh, you began your Army career in the early 80s uh, as a platoon leader in Germany. Uh, you also then in, in the mid-90s, you, you served as aide-de-camp to the Supreme Allied Commander Europe uh, and, of course, finished your career as the commanding general of, of U.S. Army Europe. You know, when you kind of look back at uh, at... Uh, that career and the and the unique based on the unique perspective that you've gained given um, kind of the the course of your career and the time that you've spent in Europe, how much has changed when we talk about European defense and and uh, and what has changed? Well, I think uh, we've we have forgotten about the importance of allies. Um, I mean, when I was a lieutenant. You know, huge Bundeswehr, huge British Army of the Rhine. There was even a large Dutch Corps. <laughs> you know, big Canadian forces all in Europe. And it was not uncommon to, you, I mean, the Bundeswehr was so good. And uh, then over the past 20 years, uh, U.S. leadership in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we, we began to kind of take a lot of our allies for granted and disdain and, and, and didn't appreciate their contribution. And uh, I think, Getting that back 
is is important. The, the two years I was aide de camp for Secure as General Jowen from 95 to 97 really reopened my eyes to the importance of allies, that there, there's a power that comes from not just how many tanks do they have or how good is their artillery or their, or their Navy, but the, the uh, power that comes from nations committed to each other, contributing what they can um, and uh, what, what that means both to uh, all of us as well as to potential adversaries. That, that's one thing. Um, the second thing is the, the value of American leadership. Even, even though our allies will criticize, I mean, that's the most popular sport in Europe other than soccer is <laughs> criticizing the Yanks. Um, I can remember as a lieutenant, hundreds of thousands of protesters with the Pershing II deployment, or you'd see Ami's Rouse spray painted somewhere. But that's, that's superficial stuff. You know, the real relationships, the trust, the, the very, very high expectations of the United States by our European friends, uh, even the ones who are the furthest left, most green. You know, they send their kids to school in the States. They holiday in the States. They they all talk about, you know, America in such a way. Um, we've got to live up to our talking points. You know, I mean, we, we, we have to um, not to not to. Uh, direct everybody, but to be the sort of rallying point for uh, what liberal democracy is and, and, and so on. And uh, that, that requires respect for others as well, not, not clubbing them over the head all the time. I, I'd much rather, for example, see us compete against the Chinese to provide a better 5G solution than threaten them for it. You, you cannot use Huawei. It, because what we what we make working with Nokia and Ericsson and some American company will be a hundred times better than Huawei. It just won't be as cheap. So how how do we compete against what China's doing? So that's it's a long rambling answer to a good question, and it's about I've been reminded again and again about the importance of American leadership being the example of of what good can be. And you know they're all watching what's happening in America right now, and uh, it's hard. Well, that's a really fitting point, I think, to uh, to end the conversation about European defense on is just just the central role and the importance of allies and and uh, and respect for them and what they bring to the table. So, sir, I want to thank you again for uh, for taking some time this morning and uh, and sharing your thoughts. I really appreciate it. Hey, John, thanks very much for the uh, for the privilege and the opportunity. I enjoyed it. I like what you're doing, and, and also knowing the organization to which you're attacked, attached. I got to say, beat Navy. <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again.